One. One. Yay. Woohoo. <clears throat> All right. Honk, honk. In honor of the upcoming single month devoted to black history, in honor of black or white, what movie actually does a good job of addressing race? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Harold and Kumar go to White Castle, not because it's really about race, but it proves that weird stoners can come in many races. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and I'm going to say, do the right thing. At times in my life, some of those views seemed extreme, but now... Wah, wah. Then you move to Bed-Stuy. Ayo. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 56 for the week of Tuesday, January 27th, 2015, the year of our time, Lord Dr. Emmett Brown. Uh, we're having a slightly weird format this week because uh, Patches and David are at Sundance and Dave and I are left, uh, well, you would guess which one of us is in Snowy Wilds and you'd be wrong because it's snowing in New York and not in Colorado, which is really weird. That's right. I could see snow on the mountains through the window, but not anywhere that it is making me cold. And as you listen to this, I have probably died in a snowbank somewhere because uh, New Yorkers really panic about snow. But uh, anyway, we have a uh, different but slightly, uh, but no, different but even better format this week. So uh, buckle down. Buckle down? You don't say that. Up, down. Yeah. Join us. Buckle in all the prepositions. (laughs) Lucky Soul who watched the SAG Awards on Sunday night. Dave, I'm assuming you watched not a minute of the SAG Awards. Oh no, I have yet to acquire a television, so I will, I'm still in the cable cutting grouping. Yeah, which is really probably a smart thing to do, especially because I watched the SAG Awards and then watched Crazy Stupid Love basically twice because it was on TBS on either side of the SAG Awards. Mm -hmm. I watched that vine of Emma Stone uh, tripping Naomi Watts, was it? Like uh, 600 times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's pretty much all you needed to see. Um, The thing about the SAG Awards that I was really back and forth about is that uh, they're two hours long, which is... You know, depending on who you ask, you know, eight hours shorter than the Oscars. The, the Oscars generally aim to be three hours long. They have tended to go over in the past. They do that less now than they used to. Um, and so for a while, I was kind of glad. Like, you know, the SAG Awards are kind of a lesser tier thing. No one was wearing that many interesting dresses. Like, I was ready to go to bed. I was glad it was over in two hours. But then I was kind of sad thinking about, like, what if the SAG Awards format is seen as gospel and all award shows get shorter? Because in general, I'm a fan of pomp and circumstance, like, crazy variety show awards shows like I wish they still did the interpretive dances of the best original score nominees where they mm-hmm. had like the Parabolist dance company doing weird dances alongside it I was a um, fan of the shadow puppet year yeah they all made crazy like penguins and stuff for Happy I think Feet. that might have been the same I think we might be talking about the same thing where they're nice. like a dance troupe that like formed shapes the important um, thing is more of that yeah well okay so Dave you're someone who like as a general rule, is not that wrapped up in awards. Like, I love the Oscars because I love the Oscars and they could be eight hours long and I would watch them. But as someone who isn't an awards show person, you also, like, are fine with, like, the weird shit that makes it last four hours? Um, I'm more, if you're going to put on a show on television, put on a show on television. That's Mm -hmm. my thing. I mean, even when the year that they were reaching and had people, like, coming down the aisles and there was all sorts of weird technical errors. um, Which year was that? Wait. 
Well, they had the microphones raising out of the actual audience aisles, and the presenters would come down and like introduce oh, a yeah. clip. Oh, yeah. That was And a it was year. like trying to bring it out of the stage area. Yeah. Was that also the Franco year? It might have been. There mm, was. I feel like it was maybe the year after. Like, that was like their one concession to youthfulness when they realized Franco was a huge mistake. Right. So, like, I, things like that are in the right direction but they don't commit fully enough it's like in an era where nbc is doing live musicals again i feel Mm -hmm. like you just you know kind of commit to it or like when the years some years the tonys have been the worth most clippiest uh show that i watch on youtube yeah just because it actually has a degree of actual performance every time you're guaranteed Of of live performance which is the thing that the oscars really don't have going for them like no movie montage is going to equal what you get when like the cast of Hairspray performs together on stage. Or even when uh, what, uh, Hugh Jackman had the hopping montage that had everybody trying to figure yeah. out what that was like, that like was dedicated weird. to. That's fine, though. That's the kind of weirdness. It's like, dedic- go and f- find this weird thing and attempt to do it and reach out. Because it's like, it's live television and with like variety shows sort of not existing anymore and late night being, I don't know, more mild and joke-based. You know, put put... Put a hundred thousand dollars into a dress and dance number. Why not? Yeah, and that's kind of what I thought they were going to do with Seth MacFarlane because he's expressed such a desire to like be a song and dance man, and he's resor- he's recorded those albums of standards, and it really didn't pan out that way, except for the. I mean, I feel like we talked about it. we saw your boobs back when this all happened, um, but I don't yeah, remember. I think we both defended it. Uh, no, I hated it. I think oh, you. I, I was assuming you defended it. Oh, well, um, that probably happened. But, like, for that to be the only thing that we got, and, like, with Neil Patrick Harris coming, like, you kind of assume there's going to be that song and dance thing. But even then, like, it's probably only going to be one number. Like, the Oscars seem kind of afraid of that, like, showmanship, like, slow everything down to do it. Whereas the Grammys, I think, are a really great example of, like, the whole reason you watch the Grammys is for people performing. And that's, you right. know, because they're musicians and they can easily be translated and Beyonce can do 15 minutes and rule the world. But I wish the Oscars would, like, embrace that side of themselves and, like, you know, take advantage of having all of these really famous people in one room and just let them do, you know, anything that shows off the fact that they're on live television. You mean get them really drunk and let them make well, jokes about a, it one no, another? That's the Golden Globes. You know, they're allowed to keep doing that. But I think about, like, when Hugh Jackman hosted and he, like, dragged Anne Hathaway up on stage to do a song and dance number. And it was, like, you know, a surprise. But she was clearly up for it. That was really fun. And, they like, so many of them have those talents. But it seems like more than, like, the actors not being willing, like, they want award shows to be short because they're worried about losing attention. And I, I feel like that's kind of a cowardly way to go about it. Yeah, I mean, cut down on the amount of awards that you show on the telecast would sadly be the solution. No, but I don't think I want- anybody would notice some of them gone. But don't you think that, like, when the sound mixers give a really great speech, like, that's showmanship in and of itself? It is, but as people who are forced to cover that, how often, like, is that, like, the eighth post? And you're like, well, I guess there's this. You wouldn't need that if there was, like, more performance stuff. And it's not like they wouldn't be getting recognized. Just they wouldn't be in the part of the telecast that everybody's tuning out of. Yeah. Imagine, uh, like, no lull in between, like, the supporting categories and, like, the finale. But I like the lull. That's the thing. Is like, at the SAG Awards, Debbie Reynolds got a Lifetime Achievement Award. And her speech was weird and rambling. And Carrie Fisher was, like, hovering in the side of the frame the whole time. And it was hilarious. And... I would not trade it for anything, even though it was a lull between giving out the awards, like giving you time to like chew on the speeches and like, and especially at the Oscars where every, I mean, these speeches are almost always emotional because people are so like 
even no matter how many awards they've won beforehand, they're really overwhelmed by it. Like there's a, there's something nice about like giving space to all of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, you do get occasional cute speeches or moving speeches from categories that you otherwise wouldn't recognize, but that's the trade-off that you're getting. Cause I don't think they're going to allow it to balloon to like a four or five hour presentation. Oh, I miss it when it was, I remember like when I was in, I think when I was in high school is when you could like routinely count on it being like four and a half hours and, they just, like, didn't bother to get it under control, and I loved it. I would yeah. watch that forever. Well, here's a question. What if they stopped doing it live? Why would they stop doing it live? Because then you could do a five-hour show and let everybody get their speeches in and not play anybody off and just do a nice little edit of it. That's true, but then don't you think the news would leak out? Like, don't they really operate off the element of surprise? I mean, maybe you'd have to be do a really quick editing turnaround, but I think you could you could definitely do it. I mean, yeah, I don't, I you s- have people that are you know professional. The, like the category of the people that direct the Oscars are like you also do the Olympics and crazy yeah. stuff. Where oh, it's like uh, I feel like that would be within Wild there. Ken Ehrlich. Our, yeah. uh, our occasional co-host, Wild Ken Ehrlich. I feel like that would um, you know work out work out. If you could get a quick delay in terms of like people would still be partying at that yeah. point. And the only people yeah. who would spoil it are people like Our Vanity jerks. Fair's Hollywood. Oh, yeah. Horrible, intolerable jerks. Yeah. Yeah, but then like you still aren't going to leave. Like then you really don't have room for the interpretive dances because you're not like trying to fill the time. Like no one would have the patience for that if that happened. It would just be like a really straightforward like here are the winners. You think so? You think know. there wouldn't be a general understanding like you were talking about with Hugh Jackman and Hathaway that like we're putting on a show and we could all look good because yeah. we have this benefit of the edit? That's an interesting question because like the Muppet Show obviously wasn't taped live. Like I mean, we ne- we didn't live in the vari- in the era of the variety show, mm-hmm. so it's kind of hard for me to like imagine that feeling. And also like with the way that we watch television now, like it's so different that I don't know that the taped versus live thing is the same thing anymore, but it is hard for me to imagine what it would be like to watch an Oscars. It wasn't live. Um, I bet they could do it in a way where you could barely tell, except it just seems a little cleaner. And, it seems streamlined. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel like there, there's gotta be smart enough people around doing this. And then everybody recognizes it's already like make everybody else look good and accept your award and, be you know gracious about it yeah so it's like they're not they're never going to be the mtv movie awards that depends on gaffes so you might as well take that that opportunity out but then again the uh the sag awards like they ran under time which i don't think i've ever seen in an award show do and so huh. they had like five minutes at the end where they ran the credits and just showed all the people in the crowd talking to each other which is totally unplanned and only because it ran too long and it was so great. Like watching Meryl Streep take selfies with some random person and like everyone lined up to try to talk to Jennifer Aniston. It was really entertaining. I feel like there are entire channels for what you're talking about. (laughs) No, but not that many famous people. That's what's great about it. (laughs) It's like at the Golden Globes, like watching who's sitting at whose table and who's chatting between commercial breaks. Like, I mean, this is something that maybe only obsessives like I want, but I think you're talking about uh, you want to, you want a venue where it's okay for you to be a voyeur at these stars. I want basically a celebrity zoo where they're standing around interacting with each other and I just get to watch. <laughs> so please I would go give to me that, that too. Yeah, give me that in my award shows and I will be perfectly happy and include uh, singing and dancing if you can.
I have always been interested in theme parks. Mostly, I grew up like young, young age, like zero to five in Van Nuys or Valencia, California, in that area. So we had access to the Disney sort of area that my grandparents were also near. There was Disney was always a periphery, and we used to go to this place called Storybook Land that was like Disneyland for toddlers. And then when I would come, it does still exist. It's really cool. You get a little plastic key and you go these displays that are like, uh, you know, like Little Red Riding Hood or whatever. And you put the key in and turn it and it activates like a story to play. And there's slides and things. Yeah, no, it's pretty cool for like a little kid. Yeah. It's in terms of recognizable uh, characters, too. Um, It it didn't do too too shabby. Recognizable characters in the public domain. Yeah, Three Little Pigs and Big Bad Wolf and whatnot. Didn't have the actual song because that's Disney copyrighted, but I eventually got there. I didn't want the song anyway. Big Bad Wolf used to give me nightmares, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) And then my other set of grandparents actually ended up moving to uh, Studio City, which is where Universal Studios is. So from a very young age, uh, probably like 88, 89 was my first time going, and we would go occasionally when I would go to visit. So I had this interesting interaction with both theme parks or Disney, which is something very like urban planned and presented and universal, which is like, a, look at this back lot and here's how we do special effects. And I'm sure encouraged me in my love of film going forward. This week, I started reading a book called Universal versus Disney, The Unofficial Guide to American Theme Park's Greatest Rivalry, which sort of covers these two studios. Um making attractions and how Universal started as like a peek behind the curtain and eventually with uh, Disney Orlando and Universal Studios Florida they sort of started competing in the same space of trying to create like these little theme park attractions that told actual stories and Mm -hmm. it's always interested me uh, even in college I took a class called alternate theater that would go to like interactive theaters or like sculpture gardens and try to find like the creating story in like a fun theme park environment but this has always interested me from a business standpoint and now that i've been doing a lot more thinking slash reading on the whole franchising aspect where it's like you take something that you love and you give people a product of that and then they'll just get become addicted to that i keep thinking about like how many times i went on back to the future the ride Mm -hmm. and bought all the crazy stuff at the end of it Mm -hmm. and just how uh, i think patches did an interview with one of the designers who was involved in that ride and how they really treated it like a film and a storytelling experience and the motions were very particularly calibrated so that you wouldn't get motion sickness against this IMAX screen and they shot it on this like IMAX film through a fisheye lens and it was one of the last IMAX like ride films that was ever uh, done without any CGI they actually used like motion control cameras to stop motion animate things like the T-Rex and just like yeah I know it's great and there was a time in where like these theme park attractions were actually forwarding filmmaking technology. I'm not sure that's happening anymore. I haven't been recently to Universal Studios with the new Peter Jackson 3D surround King Kong motion ride or the uh, Transformers 3D ride. And there's only so much I could get from watching like YouTube videos that are in 3D <laughs> and not having like 3D glasses. Yeah, I feel like that's a lost cause. 
but it seems like uh, something that you've been to that I haven't been to is like the Harry Potter land and Universal yeah. is still like a successful example of how these theme parks are pushing intellectual properties into like stories. But I, like like I said, I haven't I haven't been there. Yeah, I mean the Harry Potter ride. Like I, I did the Harry Potter ride on the same trip that I did the Spider Man ride at uh, Universal Orlando, which mm-hmm. I did when I was in high school and felt really revolutionary. And like I felt like I was being attacked by I think it's the Green Goblin in that. Maybe it's Doc Ock. No, I think it's Doc Ock. Yeah. Um, and I could kind of see the seams in that that time. And then I went on the Harry Potter ride, which oh god, it's got a name, but it's like inside the Hogwarts Castle and Universal. Um, and it feels so immersive, and it kind of whips you around to such a degree that you don't even you don't see the seams at all i don't know if that's an effect of the filmmaking or of the mechanics of the ride itself and i actually do you count like the seat that you're in and the way the track moves as part of the filmmaking in this case um i guess i would have to for a ride that uses any any sort of film i guess it's sort of like touchy but i mean i guess i would yeah. if it was like star tours or something like that i would definitely oh say God, that star tours yeah, have you been on the updated Star Tours? No, hey, it's a it's a little bit better. Um, I remember Body Wars really well from Epcot. I mean, I have never been to any of the California Disney parks. I've only been to the ones in Orlando because oh, that's, interesting. That's where I grew up. Um, and I cannot tell you how little it mattered to me that no TV show has ever been filmed in Florida because it <laughs> felt like the Universal backlot at Universal Studios in Florida felt so real to me, like Nickelodeon Studios and all of that stuff, like it completely sold me, which is such a funny thing to realize, like knowing the reality of it. Um, <laughs> well, I was, I was watching a trade video from 1990 when Universal Studios Florida opened about all the attractions there. And they actually were filming Psycho 4 there at the time when it opened. Oh my God. Uh, and they kept the Psycho house. But yeah, not a lot of production going on. Uh, Nickelodeon was really, really popular uh, later on when they started. Yeah, uh, you used to be able to like be in shows like Legends of the Hidden Temple and whatnot. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that when we went to Universal when I was a kid, Nickelodeon Studios was well in action, and that, I mean, that was like visiting the Hollywood sign as far as I, went, I was concerned. That was like a huge deal. Yeah, and I don't know, I don't know if you think kids these days are like savvier than that and like kind of realize that if they're in Florida, they're not really in like the hotbed of movie making. I mean, probably, but the interesting thing about the difference between Universal Hollywood and Universal Florida is that my, uh, I'm going to say my versus your because we went to the (laughs) separate parks. Um, My version, since it started as a peek behind the studio backlot, a lot of the things happen on one tour. So you go on the studio tour and the tram includes things like King Kong and Jaws and Earthquake and all that. Where is that the one in- where they do like the special effects and there's the flames and the floods and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, all okay, that. Happens. Yeah, they do that. They do that. In, they do that in Florida. It's just like well, they do it. Here's how they we do make it in movies, Florida too, but it's all it's all modular, so you could like wait in line for King Kong or like wait in line for Jaws. Oh no! Th- well, there's that too, but there's also like the thing where you get on the train. Actually, this might be at MGM Studios, which is. Uh, it has a different name now. It's owned by Disney. Um, oh, yeah. But they MGM, like Disney MGM has is the, now it's the like great Hollywood movie Studios ride. Now. Yeah, the great yeah, movie yeah. ride. Exactly. Yeah. Oh wait, no, no, yeah, that's yeah. the one that's I've, inside I've on where that. it's just like uh, animatronics, right? Well, there's animatronics and there's times that your guide interacts with the set and there's some actors and they like and there's like floods and fires and stuff like that and they're pretending everything's gone wrong. Yeah, there was uh, that was. 
basically opened by Michael Eisner when he heard that Universal bought land <laughs> uh, 10 miles down from Disney. He decided oh, he's going to beat them to a studio tour. So that's, that's why right. Universal Florida actually were like, well, we need out instead of like Universal Studios Hollywood, you drive through the Amity set, Jaws pops out, you're like, oh no, and you drive past the Amity set. In Florida, they're like, well, now we need to make this a whole story. So yeah. you go around and you see that the sharks attacked somebody and left a Mickey Mouse hat. And then you see a whole bunch of boats and the shark actually attacks, I think, like three or four times. Anyway, they need like seven sharks. And then at the end, your guide like <laughs> uh, electrocutes the shark and it blows up. But it it's like this whole story instead of like one shark in Hollywood that sort of comes out because they wanted to compete with Disney and like building story theme park rides. Isn't this a metaphor for how blockbuster filmmaking has gotten, you know, all about one-upsmanship and how our movies get worse? Yes, but the, so now the question is, is do I want movies where, at, you know, uh, an hour and 30 minutes into it, a whole bunch of CGI starts fighting itself? Or do I want to, you know, go experience these rides that have now sort of become a whole bunch of CGI fighting itself while I'm in a cart? Well, I think Michael Bay has said that, like, what he's competing with is not other movies, but with theme parks. Like, he's trying to give you that experience in a regular movie. And if that's what's going to happen, and I don't know that other people are going to do what Michael Bay does. Like, I think there's no contest. I think you wait and shell out for the theme park and don't bother going to the movies. But I think there are enough of them that kind of do enough filmmaking that the theme park becomes a separate thing. I think you're definitely going to find more filmmaking integrated into theme park rides because it occurs to me now that it's like in in a world where E.T. was an animatronic, you could sub in animatronic E.T.s and kids are going to believe it. But in a world yeah. where like Megatron has never been real, it's like showing them a real Megatron. They're going to realize that it's not what they've you know encountered. Yeah. yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I, I definitely expect Universal to update for the uh, Jurassic World once that comes out because why wouldn't you put a crazy new dinosaur at the end of your ride but like I, I want more stuff like that I want more ride the movies and uh, Disneyland like immersive experiences but don't you think, I mean Harry Potter World is doing something so interesting in that like it's you know part of it is CGI but a lot of it is about the real characters and you know they've gotten these actors to come back and film things but like also they built Diagon Alley and there's like a big plaster fake dragon that breathes smoke over the street and that's not a ride and that's not like anything that's approximating the movie that's just like you having the experience and that's like that's almost more like the experiential theater you were talking about like I think yeah. that's like no more in New York where you're walking around and you have the choice over it but the experience kind of comes to you and that feels like much more of the future than Jaws the Ride where the tour guide is interacting with a shark and you're just sitting there yeah no definitely i like stuff like that and like costume charactering i definitely think that that's more an immersive experience but you have to wonder with stuff like star wars being in disney's hands now and it's like of course there's going to be a new ride or a land or something mm -hmm. i really hope they go in a direction of like an immersive land like you're talking about and less in the direction of like a motion control filmmaking ride even though you would think I would want filmmaking, it's like I don't think they're no. going to commit to it like uh, Captain EO level. They're just going to yeah. And I know, think that the val I think they are smart enough to recognize the value of Harry Potter world and that like you want to go into the cantina and like order a drink rather than like sit on a Star Wars ride. Yeah. Oh don't man. Don't want to go in the cantina? Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> That reminds me of uh, the old Quark's Bar in Las Vegas. It was a Deep Space Nine themed Star Trek bar. 
It oh, was awesome. sweet. Yeah, I still have my mug from the Hogshead in Harry Potter World because, uh, you know, I choose to believe that was a real place that I went. Oh, this year, maybe. <laughs> you should go. You saw my wand, right? Yes. Oh, your wand. Good. My wand. It's your wand. That uh, is right. I'm glad you're the right person to have that wand. We're here at Sundance 2015. Uh, we are in the thick of Sundance. Actually, usually when we do this segment here live from Sundance, we're at least a little early. We're like going with our initial reactions yeah. to the festival. This year, it's late. Everything is off this year. We're because pretty we, much done now. The, the, sun, yeah. the festival has been bumped a week. Everything is off. There are so many people here at the festival. It's crazy. It's not, also, it's not to get inside baseball. Everything's melting, yeah. Yeah, it's good weather. We're, yeah, we're our here. Hearts. <laughs> our hearts are melting yeah. for all the fantastic films. Oh, David is here. I'm here, and we're here with Jordan Hoffman of The Guardian. Thank you, Jordan. Yeah, we did this last year. This, uh, if, if you want to refer to the uh, the archives, I think in a similarly exhausted state. Sure, I guess I was I was just giving you props for being here. Oh, today. okay. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> so, um, Patches, what are we going to talk about? Yeah, here? let's let's talk about the festival. We're 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 gonna breeze through some things. Uh, I I told both of you that. To, to keep it light, to, we've seen so many films already uh, this festival. Let's let's talk about two things that we like and maybe one thing that stands out as something that we didn't like. Jordan, I'm going to turn it to you first. Oh, is there something that you uh, did not – or something? two things that you enjoy okay. that stand out as – I feel like this festival overall has been actually pretty good. We, we, I yeah. mean, in the years past, we've had some huge – highlights um, yeah. like boyhood from last year uh, and maybe some films that that disappointed or that kind of middle out whatever yeah um and this year has been relatively good i don't know if you feel that way yeah uh pretty good so i guess i'll mention two films but i guess if i mention it there's one that everybody liked so i'll bring it up everyone yeah i don't i haven't talked to a damn soul here in park city that didn't like the witch the witch a film by robert eggers a new filmmaker and The Witch is really great because it is a historical drama slash horror film, and it doesn't skimp on either side. Uh, I would pitch it to you as Terrence Malick's The New World meets The Exorcist, right? So it's set in Puritan times, early 1600s, uh, and there's a family. So dig this. The, the Puritans are so religiously bananas that leave England to do their own thing. And then imagine a, a, a guy who's so... Uh, intense that he leaves the village to go live out in the wilderness with his family and he wants to live an aesthetic uh, uh, light or aesthetic light or whatever the word is called aesthetic. Thank you. aesthetic life he's, he's kicked out it's also a very aesthetic life yes and uh and you know his his family is frightened of the of the witches that live in the dark wood on the other side of the brook and then weird stuff starts happening and then the movie doesn't skimp out i don't think this is a spoiler to say this is not the type of movie where you don't know whether there's something supernatural. This is supernatural. not Blair Witch Project. No, it's not Blair Witch Project. It, the movie is supernatural, and it's so cool. And the reasons why it's cool is a couple of cool gimmicks. One of them is that all of the language is done in very old-timey uh, speak. Uh, so it's what's thou and thou doff this, and it really is it's really <laughs> cool. And it's just shot really nicely, really clean, interesting framing. Performance is really great. Young woman is the lead by the name of Anna so-and-so. Anna so-and-so is the lead of the movie. Yeah, I don't know her last oh, name. Oh, Anna so-and-so. Yeah, she's delightful. And um, and it's 
shot really nicely. So I dug the this Witch is, a lot. This is not going out in your backyard and shooting no, a horror no, film no. on a budget. Um, and it's also, it's not a horror film that's going to delight, uh, as our friend Jeff Wells would call, uh, Johnny Sixpack, uh, Joe Popcorn, and Jane Popcorn. Uh, it's not... Ins- <laughs> All three of them it's love not, going to the movies together. It's not, it's not a, like, insidious or... Any of that fucking... Who's that dick who's doing... Scott James Der- Wan. Worse than Wan. Scott Derrickson. It's not like a oh, Scott sh- Derrickson film. Wow. Whoa, shots fired. <laughs> shots fired a year ago. This is not Deliver Us From Evil. No, it's not anything... Like, Scott Derrickson, in his wildest dreams, couldn't even make a trailer for this film. Um, this is good filmmaking, not crap. And uh, it's, so as a result of that, it's not going to make a lot of money because it's for smart people who listen to this podcast. Well, A24 picked it up. A, yeah, A24. David is enraged because they might be putting this out on DirecTV. <laughs> David David hates this film, right? No. This, oh, uh, I, I, I love this film. Uh, this is your he- movie. You to should... hell and back. Jordan stole it from me. In this segment, so, uh, but <laughs> I, I gave A24 a piece of my mind about making sure that this got a strong theatrical release, release at least on par with that that IFC Midnight gave the Babadook uh, because I'm worried that like films like Life After Beth and Enemy before it, that the digital DirecTV deal might interfere with giving it a strong theatrical push. But uh, I am told that... They all certainly share our love for the film and will do their best to support it. Let, let me ask you something about The Witch. I, I like The Witch a lot. I think it's good. I'm probably the least uh, enthusiastic of, yes, bewitched by it uh, out of the three of you. I, I mean, for me, the, the ye old English kind of prohibits great character, great story, but that Robert Eggers seems to be a, a real talent, a real find, someone who has a visual sense in a way that a lot of horror directors, genre directors, or directors at all seem to have. I mean, what, what do you think separates him from a lot of other uh, visualists? I, I, he doesn't seem like a music video director to no, me. No, no, no. He he's, he's not MTV crap, Really, really good tone. I mean, to you, be an 80-year-old. You're scared uh, during this film, and you don't quite know why. It's there's not. There are a few jump scares, like three jump scares. You know, a lesser filmmaker like a Derrickson or a Juan, or that whoever. <laughs> so many disc bombs there. Uh, uh, whoever that guy was that made like uh, the Silent House or whatever. I mean, is that a movie? Yeah, Silent House is a movie that premiered at Sundance. Yeah, yeah. Ago. it's all jump scares. I mean, this is not. There's like a couple. There's of jump an actual scares. boo. In this yeah. Yes, the first jump scare is the word boo. It's yeah, hilarious. That's amazing. But I will say, I will say that um, well, as far as what Jordan was saying about not knowing why you're scared, uh, that is patently untrue. This is the rare horror film to have the courage to show you exactly what to be afraid of. Ten minutes into the movie, you see a terrifying sequence in which, after that boo jump scare, the eponymous witch turn, uh, essentially turns a baby into blood lotion with a pestle and mortar uh, and in the nude and it is horrifying and that sets the tone for everything to come until not as hot as i thought it could no, be until the last 20 minutes of this movie where things just go so gloriously haywire yeah. uh it's such a giddy wonderful time, it is good time. so we're, we're all pretty high on the witch yeah. uh I, I wish it had a little stronger Theme, character, the yeah. whole package. But the vision is there. It's I, viscerally enjoyable. Patches, why don't you pick one of your... We'll go in a line. Why don't okay. you pick one of your favorites? I, I was really surprised. 
um, by End of the Tour, the James oh, Ponsalt yeah. film that um, I think all three of us probably expected to be bad. Um, despite, just, I gotta say, David's checking Twitter during the podcast. J- J- David. <laughs> David was not ready for this movie to be good. He was not ready for this movie to be good after he saw it and kind of enjoyed it. Yeah. David resisted this movie. I, I'm putting words in his mouth. I'm ready for this. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I am a James Ponsult fan. I really liked yeah. um, Smashed, uh, the, the alcoholism drama that you he did alcoholism. a few years ago. I love alcohol. Uh, and and I, I really enjoyed Spectacular. Now I know that you... Are, David are indifferent. I don't. Jordan, do you like Spectacular? Now? What's your I, thought of that? I, I, uh, I, I do like Spectacular now a lot um, because it goes in directions you don't expect it to go. All of his movies do that, and 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 this one especially, you know where it's going to end. Like ten minutes in, you kind of know how it's going to end. End of the tour. End of the tour. And and Spectacular. Well, certain scenes in Spectacular now, they, they it goes where you expect, but it goes there in a roundabout route. And end of the tour. Is basically it's just these two guys talking. They're talking at the I, mall. I think it's like it's basically car. James Ponsalt's before Wait, movie. But, yeah. That's that's been my. Have either of you guys mentioned so. who one of these guys is? Okay, yeah. So yeah, so yeah, the, yeah, the premise yeah. of this movie is yeah. that uh, journalist Dave Lipsky, I believe, who yes. is working for the Rolling Stone in uh, I think 1996 or somewhere in the mid 90s, shortly um, after the publishing of a certain yes, novel. Infinite yeah. Jest comes out. David Foster Waller's Infinite Jest, uh, and Dave Lipsky is is so. Enamored by this text that he feels like he has to do a profile. He's doing a ride along with David Foster Wallace at the peak of his nascent uh, fame. Uh, wait, no, at, at the at the ascendancy of his fame. <laughs> um, and uh, they go on a book tour and they just kind of schmooze and they go to hotels. They go to an NPR interview, and it's about two writers communicating. And it's really an opportunity for uh, Jason Siegel, who's good in the film. To sort of be a cipher for David Foster Wallace's sort of point of view about uh, popular culture, right. fame, celebrity, uh, genuine genuinity, but, all, but also to genuineness, be, but but also to be someone who doesn't understand people's desire to know those artists. I think in the film. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg plays Dave Lipsky, the, the journalist, interviewing David Foster Wallace. And he says something like, well, if we're going to read a thousand-page book, we want to know who wrote it. Yeah, you know? yeah. And that is important in some ways. So while it is kind of like on the attack for these long profiles, these features that we read in magazines that have no you know, journalist-to-subject relationships are, are totally vapid um, – they are necessary. We do want to get inside the heads of these people who resist mm. explaining their art. They don't have to explain it, but we want to know who they are just so we have this kind of yeah. understanding of why we would want to read someone's a thousand page book. Yeah. And what's interesting about End of the Tour, and I think the strongest decision that James Ponsolt makes and, and that the script makes, is that Ultimately, I think it's about Dave Lipsky. It's not really about David Foster Wallace. It's, it's about, about someone encountering yeah. someone as as big and and yeah. uh, intense and and intelligent as David Foster Wallace. But it's really about someone who's envious of that person. Oh, sure, yeah. He wishes to he could write as well as Wallace does. Um, and then maybe but, I do. So, but <laughs> but it's also listen. The movie is sort of a fan fiction for you know people who dig NPR David listeners. Wallace. Yeah, fan fiction for NPR listeners. And uh, Siegel is good. I mean, as I, as I wrote in my review in The Guardian, um, when you first see him, he looks like he's in a David Foster Wallace Halloween costume. But 
you know, it's still pretty cool to have somebody talk like he talks and he, he nails that. Yeah, he, he nails, nails it pretty that. well. He's a pretty cool figure. So yeah, that's a good one. I like that movie. David, also. how about you? Something that you enjoyed? Because oh. you have been so resistant about Sundance on this podcast. I have. <laughs> but uh, you are enjoying yourself, and you have to admit it. I'm having a phenomenal time, even if the movies are uh, hit and miss and the lineup isn't as consistently strong as you might find at some other festivals. I am having the time of my life out here, no doubt. And, um, yeah, it's a, I was just reading something about last year's lineup and just reminding me about how you can't necessarily expect something like that every year. But there have been a few movies that have almost been as good as some of the the big films from last year. And in addition to The Witch, uh, and in addition to the best film fest, the best film at this festival of any kind, which is, of course, Don Hertzfeld's new short, World of Tomorrow. Which, which will come out which in will, some Which will capacity. come out. Uh, it's better than all the features here. And, uh, and um, you can read... I can, why not chill? You can read my interview with Don Hertzfeld on LittleWhiteLies.com. But uh, uh, that is the best film at Sundance. But the best feature, aside from The Witch that I've seen, is probably Noah Baumbach's new film, Ooh. Mistress America, which uh, his, his, his new new film, I should say, new, new. because, of course, new new. There's also While We're Young, uh, which is a broader, more March. commercial offer. It comes out in March. And not I think as good as Mistress. Not remotely close. It's very different, but it's also uh, similarly preoccupied with age, as a lot of Noah Baumbach's films are. But Mistress America is something that he's been sort of shooting on the lowdown for a little while. Um, it is more in the vein of Francis, of Francis Ha, not just because it was co-written again with his creative and life partner, Greta Gerwig, who stars in it. It's the story of Lola Kirk, Jemima Kirk's younger and probably more talented sister, who, uh, who um, is a Barnard freshman and is not really fitting in. And she meets the girl who is going to become her stepsister, or is scheduled to become her stepsister in the near future, is played by Greta Gerwig, who's sort of this crazy free spirit. And it's this wild, motor-mouthed, screwball comedy in the vein of Preston Sturges or... or uh, you know, John uh, Howard Hawks and Clueless John. is my identifying hand. Clueless, I, 20th, I, 20th century. Um, yeah, no, Clueless. What, well, uh, I, I say Clueless because it. I feel clueless. like no, no. I feel like it's really on point with a generation. I feel like it's not just no. It's from the nineteen thirties. It's kind of heightened. No, it's it. Uh, it definitely has this heightened yeah. writing, which I think Clueless does because it's adapting something from the past. But it's also digging. It's its hands so deep into a very specific time and place, which is now. I mean, you're it's, both, it's you're both right. It has the screwball energy of the 1930s and 40s, but it is very inextricably tied to what's happening here and now. I love here. being scolded by Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. Yeah, like I, mean, I love the millennial ambition on fire here, and it, you know, it's it's the antithesis of. Francis Ha. That was all about like the malaise of being a millennial They're and getting stuck characters. in it. Yeah. And here, Greta Gerwig is playing Cher from Clueless. She is so bumbly, and and she thinks she owns the world. She thinks she can do gonna, everything. Gonna, She's an amazing character. A Patches, total I'm gonna, difference. I'm going to blow your mind. What year did Clueless come out? 1995. Okay, Katie Rich, you listening? <laughs> I've never seen Clueless. Oh You've never seen Clueless. It came out. In, we've discussed this. My this is so. This is when you. this is when you were. Uh, it came out in 1995 at in university. In 1995, I was a film student at New York University, and I did not see movies like Clueless. <laughs> I never saw Forrest Gump. I never saw Clueless. We'll bring you back. And there's any other movie from 1994, 1995 that was really, really popular. I couldn't see. Uh, right. the, the one thing. The one thing I want to ask you about, <laughs> Mistress America, is. A lot of people that we've gone to the festival with hate this movie. They're a bunch of idiots. What do they know? Uh, well, they think it's it's 
you know, it fizzled out. It goes out of control. It's too farcical. It's too hyperactive. This chocolate's too sweet. This cake is too yummy. What's wrong the with this? The second people? half of this movie is all, for the most part, in a single location. Right. Uh, and it becomes, There's a part where, like, seven people are in a room. It's like noises off. And it's it, crazy. it becomes like a, a Tennessee Williams play on. It's like, you know, on Adderall. And it's such a brilliant and extended comic set piece. Uh, I really thought it was. It was heavenly. Um, I think it's as good as anything Noah Baumbach's made. It's so insane. And I think it's going to be absolutely huge. And I say that relative to uh, its audience. I think it's going to pop in a way. It'll play the landmark sunshine in New York for a (laughs) year and a half. Yeah, yeah. Like the way that Francis Todd did, uh, I think it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, I I actually think... um, I think it's better than Francis Ha. But Francis Ha, I can... But it's, they're, it's on par with Francis Ha. You have to really watch is. that movie again, I think. Yeah. yeah it's <laughs> Don't on, make that claim. It's they're, it's pretty damn good. Yeah. Okay, Jordan. Oh, to, another to, good one. To wrap up, one, one, one more going and one more thing you didn't like Okay, so we'll go quickly. quick. All right. Um, uh, you know, no one else is going to mention this. I, I really like the Wolfpack, but a lot of other people are writing and talking about the Wolfpack. I also... What is the Wolfpack? No, I'm not picking the Wolfpack. No, though. oh, you're not Wolfpack picking is a Wolfpack. documentary. It's sort of like a Grey Gardens, go urban Grey Gardens about these kids... All right, I'll talk about it. It's the, the Be Kind Rewind yeah, be of Grey Gardens yeah. documentary. It's these kids that are kind of trapped by their weirdo father. They're sort of agoraphobes, and they never leave their small New York City apartment. Seven kids, six brothers and a sister. Um, but I, I want to talk about The Nightmare real quick. Yes, please, because the you nightmare, love this film. I, and you, were, you were yelping <clears throat> and screeching yeah, and I curling lo- into your seat I like this movie. movie more than most. I think I like this more than anyone of all of our colleagues. I, that's definitely true. <laughs> and maybe maybe I'm an idiot, but it really affected me. The Nightmare, very quickly, is by Rodney Asher. You know him from Room 237. But this movie is more like his short called The S from Hell. The S from Hell was about people who are inexplicably frightened by... Uh, the cor- logo. corporate logos yeah. and this is a story about a true uh, phenomenon called sleep paralysis and it talks about eight subjects and it just discusses kind of in a rambly fashion with very little three act structure which I agree is a problem uh, just their experiences with sleep paralysis and it's done through uh, recreation and sort of voiceover narration similar to room 237 I just think it's just really cool and it just got under my skin in a really, uh, a really heavy way, man. I so. I feel similarly only because, as you Jordan, you and I have discussed in the past, how obsessed I was with like gray aliens and shadow <laughs> people and like right. fun kind of paranormal, yeah. weird conspiracy stuff, um, like Mothman. Yeah, and um, that's kind of like fallen out of fashion. We no longer have that as right. something to be we can have fun about and and suddenly this brings it all back because apparently everyone who has the sleep par- paralysis suffers the same visions which i find ex- uh, exceptionally wait, why, frightening no, it's it's really this film is horribly misleading in Ooh. the sense that um it first of all what it does is one man is illustrating eight different stories so it's essentially being filtered through rodney asher's mentality and he's he think you he's think he's twisting the, my he's idea creating on this. the illusion of mm. conformity um there are and you can read this on the wikipedia page and of course wikipedia is never wrong the wikipedia page for what sleep for paralysis, sleep, sleep paralysis okay. that there are uh, it's absolutely true that there are these shared uh genres of experiences that people have 
but uh, I do think it's very misleading um, in the way the film's presented. And it's yeah, part- but what do you think that they show paintings from like the 18th century with cats sleeping on people and they're framed? Yeah, and no. then people tell the, uh, talk about dreams of having cats with red eyes sleeping on their chest. Right, and I think a lot of these stories sort of feed into one another. And there's a it's a loop. It's a, yeah. it's a feedback loop. But uh, well, the I, Nightmare I, on Elm Street is apparently a feedback loop of this. Which I know, is, especially for you know the thing is that it, he's making a documentary about something that is flummoxing even scientists. There are only hypotheses as to what is causing this, what is what is uh, happening in people's heads, uh, there is not a factual understanding of what's going on. And so when you're making a documentary about that, you're similarly lost in the fog. And so he is, uh, the film is really as frustrated by a lack of answers as any of the people who are suffering right. from this. And while so why is that a problem? That, well, it reflects it um, thematically, that's interesting. Uh, in cinematically, it is super repetitive and very basic, reduced to one man. Very boring. It's silly, scary, and you can tell right off the bat that this is the kind of movie that's going to scare you more. This is alone. a jump scare movie. No, no, no. It's gonna, <laughs> I was going to say the opposite. That it's going to scare you more, kind of in the way Mothman Prophecies did for me when you're alone long after the movie, trying to go to sleep that night. Yeah. yeah um, one of one of its later beats is. Does the suggestion of sleep paralysis yeah. give you sleep paralysis? Yeah, just watching the movie. But, uh, <laughs> gonna, this is not totally a, responsible. This is not a good film. Oh, oh it is. It is not a good film. It's good. And Rodney Asher has a good film in him, but this is not, not fair. Good. Jordan, really what? quickly, what's one film didn't do it for you? Awful, okay. worst of the fest. Since blasted. I since I assume one of the other ones, one of the other two of you <laughs> is going to talk about the movie we all hate. I'm going to throw a major disc bomb in the direction of Mr. Joe. Jay Swanberg. Oh. Joseph J. Swanberg. Um, We've appreciated him on this podcast before. He's made occasion he's made seven hundred and sixty five movies. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, and his new one, Digging for Fire, is atrocious. It is um <laughs> Alright, let me get my you said quickly. It's just you can't, the, the it, rage can't be expressed. It's it, it's completely false. The characters are just What's it about? It, it's about people walking around. It's about a, a party. No, it's about it's these rich. Well, they're not rich actually. It's about this couple that have a kid, and you know they're getting in their marriage. You know, it's hard. And then so they they are house sitting a, 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 a rich person, um, and the dude the guy goes out back and he finds a gun and a bone. He's like, I want to dig up the yard and find out where this bone came from. And the wife's like, What the fuck, man? This is like a She's a yoga instructor. It's her client's house. You can't dig up the house. Then she leaves for the weekend. So he has a party and invites all his bros over, including Sam Rockwell, in the worst performance of his career. Wow. And um, just one note. He's like, Sam no, no direction, no depth, no anything. Shot it in 25 minutes. And um, <laughs> so he starts digging bones. And then, like a gr- then like two girls show up. Anna Kendrick shows up. And all she's there to do is take off her shirt, which is nice. And then, but Wait, she has no. What? Okay. She has no character. She's like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a line and then just be in my bra in a, in a pool. No, bra. Yeah, she takes off her shirt. Now that's bra. now okay. That, come on. He said different. Well, with, with, with her, with her, it's exciting. And then there's the other actress, Brie um, Larson. Yeah, not Allison Brie, but Brie Larson. Apparently, there's two now. <laughs> they they've butted who, off. Who, which one is the one on Mad Men? One of them, uh, Al- Allison Brie. She's the on one that. I like. Who's Brie Larson? Brie Larson was in Short Term Twelve. Oh shit! They're two different people. All right. Anyway, Brie Larson, who is just she's just there to be the foul temptress, and she's just doesn't even speak. So husband is like digging for bones with Brie Larson, and then wife uh, is like out, and she meets Orlando Bloom, and like he makes her a steak, 
and then the, she they, then then it ends, and then the movie, then they the, the wife gets Horrible. back home and it ends, and it has this really th- the, the David you like this mm-hmm. the composer of um, <laughs> B- Beasts of Southern Wild yeah what is his name uh, I don't know yeah Mr Beast uh, whose music is good in a vacuum has uh, recorded for this film a very striking synthesizer score it's thrums it beats and it's very heavy it's like Tangerine Dream almost and it see it makes it's very sad. Uh, music and it's like heavy, so like oh my god, whatever I'm seeing is very intense. And what this is is patch over filmmaking. It's like ju- mm. this movie has no drama, it's cutting corners. Here. Yeah, it has no drama. Shit, we better sl- slather a bunch of intense music over it to make you feel as if you're feeling something. So uh, I have to confess, I didn't do a very good job just now explaining why <laughs> this movie sucks because I'm very tired. But I did write about it, and I was a little more coherent in that. I really dislike this movie, and it annoys me that. Um, that others do he's, like he's, it. He's a Sundance saint. He's a Sundance saint. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not saying that, like, I, some people hate Joe Swanberg. I don't hate Joe Swanberg, but I do think this movie, like, I don't, I don't, it's just, it's just, it's just poor. It's, it's just, just poor. more movies to make. Yeah, it's anyway. just poor. Da- right, David, done. something really quick. Do you, a movie you like, movie you hate? I only got one movie I liked. You can't say. think of a movie you like? No, I only was asked to say one movie no, that no, I No, give me one more movie you like. You like movies. You have enjoyed this festival. Okay, well, I someone has to. So I'm going to talk about the big winner of this year's Sundance Film Festival, even though they have not given out the official awards yet. Uh, it's the highest-selling acquisition title in the history of this film festival. Ooh. is Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, yeah. uh, which... Is, uh, We're I, all shocked that you like this film because it is sweet <laughs> and sad and about young it's, people. It's one of those. It's movies, everything you hate. It's one of those movies that terribly lazy critics tweet after it's over. Anyone who has a heart will like this movie, or like you can't. If you don't like this movie, you don't have a heart. I mean, garbage people. Stop. Uh, but this movie, as I described in my review, is sort of like the Citizen Kane of teen cancer weepies. It's <laughs> it's the fault in our stars for Criterion Collection fetishists. It's it's about a cinephile uh, and his friend who make all these par- parody movies in Pittsburgh. More be kind, rewind. Right. And uh, he, it's the theme of the festival. He becomes friends with a girl who's diagnosed with leukemia. It is. Uh, they do not have a romantic relationship between them. Uh, as they're the, just DTF. There, there. No, oh, there is. There is no sex in the movie, which no. I think is a great spin. Yeah, God knows I had plenty of female friends growing up that I never touched. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, um, well, I could save that for a later episode. Yeah. But uh, it's it's so. It's so funny. It's so well done. It it has its flaws, but it's it coheres beautifully. There's a real meaning behind this movie, which I'll not get into here. You can read my review on Time Out if you'd like. But uh, this is really it elevates that genre and, and pulverizes it in meaningful ways. It is going to win this festival. I can guarantee it. Um, I will. Uh, not eat my shoe if it doesn't. But <laughs> I will. I'll and eat, Fox Searchlight is putting I'll out, and it will be. Uh, it will. It will be. I think it'll be a big release because of all the Fault in Our Stars, the YA trend. We're in late summer. They'll put out late summer. Something like yeah. It's in August. It's in August. David, any anything that you loathe, anything. Well, he hated it. He hated it. Well, I mean, I, I, the worst film of this festival is a documentary on amateur porn called Hot Girls Wanted, but it's actually so reprehensible that I don't really... We all, we saw this film together. We yeah. were basically holding hands for this amateur porn documentary. Very disturbing. Uh, but, um, it's not really, I mean, it's the, the, the content of the movie No, it's disturbing, disturbing that we were holding uh, yeah. hands it's, during it. But uh, given the content of the movie, it's, it's telling that the most disturbing thing about it is the quality of the filmmaking. 
Uh, it's really an atrocious film. But what I'd rather talk about, my second least favorite film of the festival, is the opening night film, Oof. Bronze. That's, I, that's what I imagine you were referring to, yeah, Jordan, yeah. when you were... <laughs> what a piece of shit. I mean... <laughs> You know, I, I am not really on Team Whiplash at all, but uh, that was the opening from last year, and I will be the first to admit that it was... Uh, you could barely even call them the same. They're not. They're both not even, like, movies. Like, one is, like, a thing, and the other is just not even of that genus. It, like, it's... The Bronze is a truly spectacularly shitty, uh, shrill-as-fuck comedy about a um, foul-mouthed... Like, imagine Napoleon Dynamite as, like, a tiny foul-mouthed gymnast. Um, no, it's Sarah Palin means uh, uh, Kenny Powers. From, yeah, Kenny Powers. And right. all the words are, half the words are fuck. They, right. She just says fuck over oh, and yeah. over and over fuck again. And, oh, and yeah. the movie, I, I, I can't remember the last time I saw a movie that was so, had such little self-awareness of how unfunny it was. Yeah. I mean, the movie thinks it's hilarious. It, it cleaves to these reoccurring jokes, especially those involving Gary Cole, Blaze Protagonist's father, and his goldfish, that it leans on time and again, even though they get fewer and fewer laughs. You can almost hear in that opening night screening, you can feel uh, the filmmaker and the editor just sitting there and, and understanding maybe for the first time what is going so catastrophically awry. Oh, oh, my movie. compliment to this movie is that Sebastian Stan from Winter Soldier and the original Captain America plays her adversary in this gymnastics-themed yeah. comedy, and he is kind of funny. Well, listen, the, the movie is... But she is toxic. Yeah, and it has a great sex scene. Um, yeah. uh, great. It has it's so many terrible things about it. It was sold. It will be coming out. Avoid it like fucking Ebola. It's called The Bronze. It's awful. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. Uh, and, and to wrap up, something that I really enjoyed that the two of you I think were cool on and I'd be interested to hear why um, was Craig Zobel's Z for Zachariah which uh, is this post-apocalyptic uh, drama this this tri- love triangle um, about Margot Robbie she is a farmer's daughter a, a, a staunch Christian trying to survive in um, I guess she's in the south technically in a holler they're it, probably in West Virginia because they're in a holler. Yes, but they shot this in New Zealand, so it looks extra it, it beautiful. Because I've been to, I've been to um, the Smoky Mountains and whatnot. Don't look like that. Yeah, it makes me, <laughs> it makes me think of that line in, in Austin Powers, Gold, uh, the second one, The Spider Shagby, where it's like, you ever notice how uh, it's amazing how much the American South looks like New Zealand? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's, again, yeah, that's exactly what he goes for. It, after, after something horrible... Maybe it's an atomic bomb. Who knows what happens? But all the water in the world is toxic. Everything is horrible. There are toxic zones. No one can go anywhere. Margot Robbie's basically stuck in this valley, this beautiful valley, where she um, ends up crossing paths with Chiwetelah Giafor's uh, John Loomis, yes. who is a scientist and uh, has has built himself a suit to stay away from the radiation. A and very when, hilariously designed suit. It looks, you right. know what it looks like? Did you ever play Bioshock? Yeah, of course. It looks, it looks like the big uh, yeah. daddy from Bioshock. Like a hazmat version of that. Like yes. A shiny, like a Mars lander I would like version. to point and out. And that's one of the reasons I like this movie. Lots of little world building without yeah. too much recognition for those designs or innovation. Because this movie, despite being a post-apocalyptic drama really doesn't regard the science fiction as much. This is whittling it down to relationships, to to this kind of like biblical relationship they have in the Garden of Eden here, these two man and woman trying to uh, survive and and 
continue mankind and and then all of a sudden chris pine shows up and uh it is a maybe he's the devil or maybe one of them already is the you know the snake it's a pretty uh, cool relationship thing i found it to be a maybe a little bit slow <laughs> but um that's what i like about it that's what, it's it's mostly conversations it's not yeah but they, they a, do build a swiss family robinson wheel at yeah, some point yeah they build a water wheel that's and that's cool that's cool i mean it's a I, I think the movie is good and not great. Oh, I'm reading something. I think the movie is good and not great um, because I just feel like um, it's just a little. It's just a little slow. I mean, I I don't have any. You great can watch insight. a slow movie. That's your complaint. This movie, this movie never had a shot at greatness. It's good. It's definitely good. Don't get me wrong. But it, it, there is not a, a wit of the ambition or purpose. I think uh, to this movie that is required for greatness, but everyone in it. Is I'll, I'll tell you why it's great, and because I, I've argued with this uh, while we were walking the streets of Park City, David. That you do not regard performance as much as you I do. Was, you're all I about director. You're all about vision. I was literally in the middle of saying <laughs> everybody in this movie is great when you cut me off. Uh, well, I have to I cut go. you off, and I have to barge it and pray overpraise them because no, David, I lost my mind over Chuetel and G4 no, in this movie. Chuetel and V4 is very good in this movie, and noted Rangers fan. Margot Robbie is phenomenal <laughs> in the lead role. Are we allowed to point people to your film.com interview with Margot Robbie? Uh, I, I, I'm not the really Rangers? particularly concerned with what traffic <laughs> film.com gets these days. But uh, yeah, I think the performances are great. I really liked how this was. Uh, I didn't know anything about the movie going in beyond the conceit that it was, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, the last woman on earth finding who may be the last man on earth and then another shows up in this sort of love triangle at the end of the world. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was going to be on the sort of more vast scale and, and a bigger budget film but this is really just a, a small intimate character drama yeah. that just happens to have an epic backdrop it's masquerading as ya because right. the author of the original novel wrote uh mrs frisbee and the rats of nim right, so right, right. It, it's, it, it, it is I'm gonna throw something out here and maybe somebody out there in the podcast listening universe will have heard of this movie because i don't think it was ever released in theaters i think it was direct to video and i think it was in the late 1990s there's a movie that's just called the last man and another title is The Last Man on Earth. And it's basically Z for Zachariah as a comedy. And it stars, don't laugh, Jerry Ryan, better known to you as yeah, Seven, Seven of Nine. nine? Yeah. Oh. It's the same exact movie. It's, total, it's Apocalypse. And Seven of Nine is super, super hot. And she's the last woman on Earth. And she meets a zhlub. Uh, like a Josh Gad type zhlub. And... She's like, would I sleep with him if he was the last man on earth? I guess. So she starts a relationship with him and then a handsome beefcake shows up. And so Josh Gad is like, I'm the last guy on earth. Josh Gad? It's not Josh Gad. A Josh Gad type. <laughs> Josh Gad type. And it's all about like how he wants to get laid with, with Seven of Nine. Not as good as Z for Zachary. Wait, so what happens? I don't really remember because oh, okay. I saw it in 1996 or whatever. Can somebody Google it in Fighting the War Room Land? Um, but in my memory, it was a pretty funny... I saw it at like the Austin Film Festival in 1997, I think. So I, didn't, I don't know that it ever. So it went nowhere, basically. But um, it was it was funny. Anyway. I I am high on Z for Zechariah. I think it's yeah, a beautiful it's film. I think. Oh, I'm gonna, oh, I'm gonna, I am so high on I'm gonna say many something. things. I'm gonna throw something down. This is an interesting topic of conversation. Wait. Perhaps I need to see it again because maybe sometimes seeing films at festivals. It's, it's sometimes a... <laughs> it's difficult. You don't catch because you're. Seeing, I really that's, don't that's, think that's, this is that interesting. That's bold for you to say. That's bold. Oh, well, it I... happened to me. It, it happened to me in Toronto in 2000 and whatever when I dismissed Cloud Atlas. 
Cloud Atlas, Atlas. Uh, a movie that I was with you, Patches, and when yeah. it ended, I said to you, you're not a fan. I'm like, I didn't like that. And now I think Cloud Atlas is the shit. Wow. Um, and it's because sometimes at festivals, when you're, especially when you're uh, a critic, as we are, you're cramming in 20 movies over seven days, and you're writing about them, and you're not sleeping, and you're drinking, and you're exhausted, and you don't have time to move your bowels. And uh, sometimes the movie doesn't connect when it would in a more normal context. To that end, and I'm wrapping up, I say unto you, the film, Z for Zachariah, and your three stars um, in the film, uh, I am going to watch you again. Again, I say. Oh, that is is very bold of you. Yeah, I'm going to watch it again. I, you know, I, I... I don't want to open a can of worms here, but I loved Compliance. David hates Compliance. I love Compliance. And I see a lot of Compliance in this film and just the psychology of seeing these three people together and how they manipulate each other. They comply each um, other. And, and uh, so I, I loved it. And uh, people will be able to give it a chance because Lionsgate bought this film before oh, it actually came out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this will this will actually play. Lionsgate bought Eli Roth's movie. Um, and, and to wrap up with a film that I hate, I'm going to have to go with I Smile Back. Oh, you I hated mean, that? Yeah, really? no, I definitely wow. did. Uh, this, so this is, um, is it? I smile back. At, I smile back. I liked it actually. Yeah. So I this is um, a, a film starring Sarah Silverman as this is Suburban Malaise 101. Within five minutes, Sarah Silverman's uh, disturbed, depressed housewife character snorts cocaine and eventually fucks her teddy bear, uh, her daughter's teddy bear in her room, and, and it is an awful, awful movie. This is miserableism. Uh, of, of of 2015. It's not that bad. It Don't is listen to him. Don't pretty, to it's not that bad. It's pretty awful. It's not that It'll bad. definitely come out, though, because everyone is so... You know, the the funny thing about it is that Sarah Silverman is very good. Josh, not one left. There's not one joke right. in this movie out of her. She's doing a straight, dramatic performance, and she does it very, very well. And Josh Charles, uh, my, my, my guy from uh, The Good Wife... He's great in this movie. This, but it just all falls apart. There's nothing to go on in this movie. And what annoys me so much about it is that people have been losing... Uh, there are many people at this festival losing their mind for it because Sarah Silverman's so good. They've never seen anything like it. Yeah. It's so devastating. It really rattled them. Um, and they couldn't believe that she could pull this off. I knew she could pull this off. She's really fun. Like, she's a good actress, yeah, you know? Yeah. It, uh, to do comedy means to put yourself into it. That's and fair. It um, does not surprise me that she is a good dramatic actress. Uh, so, while I, I, I can recommend her performance, this movie is awful. I, well, no, it's not awful, but I will say that it is a somewhat... Uh, you've seen it before. It's not a, it's not a very original movie. Uh, there are some sequences, like when she's in rehab, that are dull as all hell. But uh, it's not terrible. And if you're a Sarah Silverman fan... You know, you want to check it out. I mean, that's but it's not. It's, it's not but you know, you don't need to see it. You don't need to go to the first showing, as they say. You <laughs> oh my wait, gosh! You wait till it's on VOD. Uh well, yes, all of these movies that we've discussed will be out eventually. It's a buyer's market. It's, it's going to be a huge Sundance. Oh. Wait, uh, Jordan, yes. where where can people find your Sundance coverage? Ninety nine percent of my coverage is on theguardian.com. And if you live in England, you can pick up a paper. But if you don't, uh, go to theguardian.com slash movies, I guess. Fair. And David, where where is your Sundance coverage? Uh, It's mostly on... Well, it's split uh, between Time Out New York. uh, And you can can find it in the issue of Time Out New York that will be published on this coming Tuesday, whatever day that is. And also on timeout.com, of course. And for Little White Lies magazine, you can find my reviews on littlewhitelies.co.uk. And most of my 
Uh, Sundance coverage is on Grantland and a little Vanity Fair, a little bio.com, all over the place. And uh, that's it for Sundance. We're almost done, and I'm sure we'll be coming back to most of these movies throughout the year. That does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We will be back next week with the full crew. Everybody returned from Sundance. Hopefully some good stories about Patches and David cavorting in the snow and uh, me surviving the New York City blizzard. In the meantime, you can leave us a review on iTunes or find us online in lots of places, including Facebook, facebook.com slash fighting in the war room. You can leave us a voicemail at 914-410-6450. And you can also find us on Twitter, fighting with each other and with you at FITWR. That's also a great place to answer this week's lightning round question, which was, in honor of black and white, what movie actually gets race right? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. 